0: Hey folks, there has never been a better time to learn banjo online through video lessons, and the best game in town is Peghead Nation, one of our sponsors. With Peghead Nation's streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, you'll be able to learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com features a great lineup of banjo instruction with some of these courses. Check it out. Beginning Banjo with Bill Evans, Bluegrass Banjo with Bill Evans, Clawhammer Banjo with Evie Layden, Wade Ward Style Banjo with Bruce Molsky, The Banjo According to Danny Barnes, and Contemporary Bluegrass Banjo with Wes Corbett. Now, no matter what course you select, they're all going to come with high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation, plenty of tab, play-along tracks, and tunes and songs for you to learn. Perhaps best of all, if you join any of these Peghead Nation video courses now, you'll get your first month free just for being a Picky Fingers banjo podcast listener. So just go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code Picky Fingers at checkout. Another sponsor of the show is GHS Strings. We banjo players know that a banjo is only as good as the quality of strings that you put on it, And GHS has a long track record of providing the top quality in banjo strings to some of the top industry professionals such as Bela Fleck, J.D. Crowe, Sonny Osborne, Todd Taylor, and me. I'm a GHS user. So check them out at GHSstrings.com. Now if you ask me where I go to purchase my GHS strings, That answer is simple, it's the same place that I go for all of my banjo, guitar, and any other stringed instrument needs. It's Elderly Instruments here in Lansing, Michigan. They've been family owned since 1972, and it's the world's most trusted source for new used and vintage instruments and all the accessories and strings that you might need. Now if you aren't close enough to Lansing, Michigan to visit them in person, you can also see their entire inventory online at elderly.com or feel free to give them a call to speak to a knowledgeable salesperson at 517-372-7880 or once again, see what they have at elderly.com. And now on to the show.
1: my life is so much happier and better now that I play the banjo. I mean, I can remember those thoughts even as a kid, like, I'm a happier person, my life is better. And it, and that was what had changed as I'd started playing banjo.
0: Greetings, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I am Keith Billick. Really happy to have you joining me We are finally to the last episode that I recorded back at uh, IBMA last fall. And I don't want to say I saved the best for last, but this is a pretty good one with a fantastic player. But first, speaking of IBMA, if you are listening to this before this upcoming weekend, which would be March 5th, the IBMA Facebook page is hosting a live video called The Banjo Legacy of J.D. Crow." featuring Ron Stewart and a couple of veteran Picky Fingers guests, Bill Evans and Ron Block. And they'll be discussing the banjo playing of J.D. Crowe. That is a free event, but they are accepting donations to the IBMA Trust Fund. So it goes to a good cause. I don't have anything to do with it, but, you know, this is, this is the type of information I want to provide. I, I figured that those of you listening to this episode might enjoy great hard-driving bluegrass banjo playing, so, you know, just a hunch on my part. One other thing before we get started, I do work really hard on these episodes, but I know they only come out every couple weeks, so if you want to stay in touch with me outside of just hearing my soothing voice every once in a while, make sure to track me down on the social medias. If you are a Twitter user, find me at Banjo Podcast on Instagram, I am picky underscore fingers. Or on Facebook, I encourage you to join the listener group called Picky Fingers Listeners, Fans, and Friends. That's a great way to keep the banjo discussion going in between these episodes, so track me down on all of those. I also highly encourage you to check out the Patreon page, patreon.com slash banjopodcast. That's how you become a supporter of the show, which is also a huge help and very much appreciated. Or if you are not a social media user... A. I'm jealous B. You can still contact me via email That's podcast at gmail.com Drop me a line and say hey Today's featured guest is Kristen Scott Benson. I kind of consider Kristen to be like a five-star general of bluegrass banjo and by that I mean she has put in many years of exemplary bluegrass banjo service and has emerged as a highly decorated banjo player. She's won the IBMA Banjo Player of the Year Award five times. She's a recipient of the Steve Martin Award. And as a member of the award-winning band, The Graskills, she's won numerous other things and has Grammy nominations. She's just simply one of the best and really exemplifies the three Ts, of course, uh, tone timing and taste in bluegrass banjo playing. And she has a brand new recording project with her husband, Wayne Benson, who plays some sort of funny, like eight-stringed small guitar type of instrument. I don't know what it is. It's a mandolin, I know. So keep your eye out for that, or check her out with the Graskills, or check into any of her solo albums. She's got, I think, three of them now. Basically, wherever KSB is found, there will be some great banjo playing involved, and so I know you're going to dig her insights about her own banjo style and background. Here it is, my interview with Kristen Scott Benson.
1: I'm Kristen Scott Benson from Union, South Carolina, and I became a banjo player because my family loved bluegrass. I grew up around it, and I saw Scott Vestal play when I was Mm -hmm. a little kid with Doyle Lawson when he was brand new, and I thought that was the coolest thing, Uh, the banjo in that band. I loved the whole band. It was Russell Moore, Curtis Vestal, and Scott Vestal, and I'd heard bluegrass my whole life, but when I heard Scott play in that context, it opened my ears for the first time.
0: And was that the first time you considered becoming a musician yourself beyond just being around the music?
1: You know, I I didn't plan on being a professional musician ever. Mm -hmm. Uh, I made decisions that I hoped would enable that, but I still am not sure this is what I'm doing for a living, you know. (laughs) But uh, it's it's just very innocent when you're a kid. And I played mandolin already from the time I was five or six. So I was already playing instruments and around it uh, but I was never very serious about Mm. it and then I got a banjo when I was 13 Mm. that's when I got really serious and uh
0: what age were you when you saw Scott I was about
1: 9 and there's a reason for that delay um I was about nine years old and asked for banjo. My parents got one for me, and then our house burned down.
0: Oh, no. The
1: house burned down and lost the banjo, and that was not a high priority to replace. So there was just a bit of a delay before I really got started.
0: Huh. So if you already played the mandolin, that must have been a pretty strong tug to get you over into uh, banjo world. What do you think it was about either the sound or hearing Scott play? that uh, made you want to switch. I
1: think mandolin was convenient because my dad played it, my grandfather played it, and it was around. We had one, and I was little, and it was little, right? So it it wasn't like mandolin ever uh, really captivated me. It was just around, and I I loved music, so I would play it. Uh, But I'm kind of glad in a way that the start on banjo was delayed because I see over and over, especially if you read Masters of the Five-String, there seems to be this golden window of maybe 12 to 15 where people who get really uh, obsessed and passionate about playing tend to start in that age range. So I wonder if maybe I had started a bit earlier, maybe I wouldn't have been ready to really commit. Who knows? I mean, you never know, but it does seem like when you read that book that the, the overwhelming majority of people, and I'm working on a book now, and that's something that I've asked, and that just seems like to be this golden time that, that people can really absorb a passion that maybe stays with them for the rest of their life.
0: Yeah, I guess that phase of adolescence, things just seem, you just feel things very, in a stronger way, perhaps, I, I remember, than you maybe did.
1: Yeah. Uh, even as an eighth grader, just uh, having thoughts like, my life is so much happier and better now that I play the banjo. I mean, I can remember Whoa. those thoughts even as a kid, like, I'm a happier person, my life is better. And, it, and wow. that was what had changed as I'd started playing banjo.
0: So, what steps did you take then to progress? I'm kind of inferring, you said your family was into bluegrass, but there are also, it sounds like they're also musicians.
1: Well, my dad played for fun, and that was a common bond. But my grandfather, uh, for my parents, because her dad, my maternal grandfather, was a professional musician. So he played mandolin and sang tenor in a brother-style duet um, called Whitey and Hogan. And they were part of a larger group based out of Charlotte, North Carolina, that had a long-running radio show back in the golden era of AM radio.
2: Eat a heart and a hand and a brain to mourn all her life Three children, they were brave Was the dirty little coward That shot Mr. Hart And laid Jesse James in his brain For it was Robert Ford
1: they were on WBT, which was a huge station, and they had a daily radio show. And then as those radio shows fizzled out, uh, they just still played shows and uh, and did other things. But so I had his influence from her side, and then my dad just loved to play. So it was always around. But when I got a, a banjo, th- I'm so thankful my parents were proactive about lessons. So I started taking uh, lessons originally from the guy who taught me to play mandolin, his name was John Colbreth, but he had moved kind of far away. So then we yeah. uh, found a guy named Alan Brooker, and then I moved to the guy who taught him, which is world-class teacher, uh, unfortunately has passed away, Al Osteen. And all the, the great banjo players from the upstate area, which it, that sounds really weird of South Carolina, the upstate area, <laughs> but there are a lot of really good banjo players in our area. And basically, he taught us all. So he was really excellent. And I owe that to my parents for thinking, well, what do we do to help her learn?
0: Yeah. So what was Al teaching you? Do you remember some of the, the yeah, early days of learning?
1: I do. Alan Brooker kind of gave me the nuts and bolts of stuff. So I learned all the Scrux tunes and uh, could get around in a jam pretty well and uh, was just devouring it. So there was a lot of foundational stuff. He didn't talk a lot. It was just he would play, I would play, I would learn it, come back the next week, do the same thing, or every other week. And so I kind of had, I'm still working on it, but I I had a good handle on the Scruggs repertoire uh, by the end of that year with him. And then I went to Al, and Al did a lot of talking, a lot of listening. Mm. So we still played the banjo, but he was— a great banjo player. He played for Jim and Jesse and uh, Charlie Moore, some yeah. of those uh, guys, and certainly this is Al Austin. Uh, yeah, talking Al Austin. That. That's right. And he um, he was just really good about the big picture. And he would say things. He was so honest. He would say things like, "What you just played, don't ever play that again," <laughs> you know. Or I would bring something in, something modern that I was really excited about, and he would say, "It's not very good," and this is why. Huh. And then he would say, listen to what is very good that's like that. And so he was a big thinker. And if I give myself credit for one trait, uh, one good trait, it's that I was very teachable. So if anyone told me something and I knew they knew, Mm -hmm. uh, I would go with it, whether I agreed with it or not. And so he used to always say, wait till you're 30 just trust me right now, but wait till you're 30 and you'll get it. And he was so right. So many of the things huh. he was trying to teach me as a 14 year old or 15 year old, I didn't necessarily get. But uh, as I aged, I, I didn't just agree with him. I mean, I felt what he was saying. Yeah. And uh, and so we certainly learned a lot of backup stuff, a lot of swingy stuff, a lot of Alan Shelton feeling uh, yeah. tunes and, and everything. So I can't overstate the importance Of learning from him.
0: Do you happen to remember you, you, I don't like to qualify music as being good or bad, but do you remember some of those philosophies that he taught you in terms of that's good, that's bad? Like what sort of things would go in which bucket and which sort of things would go in the other bucket? (laughs)
1: That's a great question. Uh, A lot of times it had to do with authenticity and delivery. You know, is this music delivered appropriately? Meaning, Is it confident? And is it uh, executed well? And is there a groove? And is it believable? And when you can sometimes find watered down versions of things that are not delivered as effectively as uh, some of the, the real masters of this music, it helps to raise your awareness for trying to it's not about content you can get you have to have the content right, but the content just gets you in the door. so much of the effect music has on us is the spirit with which it's delivered, and yeah. that's really what he was trying to convey so it's it's not the easiest thing to articulate, but you know what it is it 's like what is drive right. I, I have a, a little—I'm working on a book for the Hal Leonard Company, and I have a little section about that when we talk about Terry Malcolm. It's hard to articulate, but when you feel it, you know it. Uh-huh. And once you start identifying what's great about a Jimmy Martin record or a Flat & Scruggs record or—I uh, mean, I could go on and on. Once that switch flips and you get it, and and let's be real, for the first-generation guys— if you grow up with Allison Krause and Union Station, Flatten Scruggs was incredibly, they were a machine. Mm-hmm. They were so amazing. They were a machine. But just production value, it's not gonna be as easy to, to latch on to yeah. that as it is a Union Station record. So, I mean, I was a victim of that like anyone else. But now, as an adult, I just get tugged more and more toward the old stuff because you have that greater appreciation of what it took to do it, and uh, certainly where Earl is concerned, uh, it's an emotional thing. Like, I can barely listen to him half the time without kind of almost wanting to cry. I mean, I'm Uh. so moved by what he's able to do. But when I was 15, if I'm real about it, uh, you know, I was digging Home of the Red Fox by Bill Emerson, Mm -hmm. and and that is great stuff. I mean, Al turned me on to that. Uh, But I just liked the slicker production at first, But it's the gateway to get to the real stuff. The accessibility and the the spirit that they deliver the music with, the the modern day acts that are successful and good, let's say good because sometimes success doesn't always correlate with that. But they they have captured that in some way.
0: So this is where I put you on the spot. You you talked about the importance of authenticity and confidence, and I think you said a few other words that were roughly in in that vein, I assume that you have taken that to heart and try to perform yourself with those qualities. How do you turn that into something that comes out on your banjo? How do you try to make sure that you're playing with authenticity?
1: That's a great question. Again, it goes, I think, back to content first. For instance, if we're Here's a good example okay. of the content with Earl. Uh, the end of um, Blue Ridge Cabin Home. A lot of people will go where the roll at the end is
2: not. It's
1: actually four three four one four three four one. That oh. sounds a lot different. Not to someone who isn't listening to ninety nine point nine percent of the world who cares. But if you care. Uh, this sounds different. Uh-huh. Versus. So I think that's layer one yeah. of authenticity is make sure the content is right. And then we're all at varying degrees on the journey as far as presentation to execute it in a way that captures the spirit that you're hopefully going for. So I, I've heard people say. Your style is limited more by limitations, not your abilities, and that's so true. Yeah. So you figure out what you're good at, and it, maybe it's improvising, or uh, maybe it's playing real clean. Whatever, whatever your yeah. strength is, you tend to take that and run with it. Uh, for Terry Balcom, he probably figured out, wow, I, I'm a really powerful banjo player, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm going to run with that. Because if you listen to his playing, it got more focused, he was a lot more adventurous as far as diversity in his playing, and then he became like the specialist, right?
2: Uh, yeah. And
1: uh, so the biggest issues for banjo specifically when you're trying to capture authenticity, assuming you're going for a bluegrass sound, is to have your content there and then realize that you have to have that just to stand a chance. How do you sound? How well... Do you sound playing this? I know that some of super advanced, incredibly talented, brilliant banjo players, content-wise, they could take a transcribed solo and play it immediately, Mm -hmm. and it sounds nothing like what it sounds like. So I think honesty can also be important. But it's hard for me because I try to play the banjo confidently and authoritatively, and I'm really neither of those things. So it's like you have to—I have to constantly overcome— try to overcome daily my personality and myself to to fake it and sound huh. confident, even though I'm usually nervy and, and uh, not feeling uh, authoritative at all. So, I don't know. It, it's a journey for us all.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I'm really a little speechless because I'm so surprised to hear you say that you lack Well, that's good. I'm faking it well. And, then. Yeah, yeah, you sure are. You have us all fooled. So you talked about finding the thing that you're good at. Do you feel like you've found what your version of Terry Balcom's drive lane that he's found himself in? Do you know what your version of that is? is, Yeah. yeah, you, you I know what searching? you're saying. Yeah. yeah,
1: you're still searching, always searching. I know what you're asking, though. And it's Friday.
0: you got to forgive me for not. Oh, my man. thoughts not coming out as clearly as they maybe otherwise would.
1: You're good. It's IVMA <laughs> week. We all get mulligans on IVMA week. But um, I, I think that I'm a very melody-driven banjo player, and I attribute it jokingly but not to my lack of creativity. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to play the melody of the song probably more than some banjo players would, and that's not necessarily a good thing, but it is a a trait that's common in my playing, and uh, I love to play backup. I'm Mm -hmm. very interested and uh, driven by backup playing, not so much in the band that I'm in because we have a lot going on in that band and right. their arrangements, but I've had musical opportunities where I've really had a chance to play a lot of backup, and I love that, and that's something Al and I worked a lot on. Huh. And then I tend to be able to play pretty smooth and even. So uh, if you think of like a, um, certainly not equating myself to him at, at all, but the the kind of banjo playing that, introduced me to bluegrass that I loved was Scott Mm Vestal. And he's a very, and I'm I'm talking back in the 80s, uh, early 90s, when he was still playing bluegrass, uh, straight ahead bluegrass. He was very uh, clean and even and just like an executioner.
2: With heartbreaking the lie, lie, lie,
1: came on with he he really was amazing, and to me he might be the guy that stands in that gap better than anyone else as far as being a a really authentic straight-ahead bluegrass banjo player. Mm. And he can branch out and and live in those other genres and situations like the sandbush bands with extended improv and stuff, and he he still just sounds so meticulous no matter what he's playing. Along with that, though, comes some downsides. I'm a, a pretty careful player because I do focus on execution, so I'm not as likely to take chances and branch out because then I've lost, you know, the cleanliness that you're going for whatever, so there are upsides to each of these traits and yeah. and downsides. And eventually, you just you just be who you are. And it took forever, but I'm 45 now, so I kind of am who I am, and I'm all right with that at this right. point. But it took a long time to get there.
0: Oh man, I, I feel like I should be taking notes. You're saying so many things that I, I want to go down these roads. Let's let's choose. Um, You mentioned evenness, and it strikes me that there are different kinds of evenness that you could have. You could have evenness in dynamics. You could have evenness in timing. And I guess I'm wondering... All of the above. um, Yeah, which of those you're you're talking about. And could you maybe even demonstrate, I don't know, just so people can hear what it means to have an even sound.
1: Yeah, so when I start teaching folks, because Wayne and I... Wayne being my husband, Mm -hmm. who's a great mandolin player with Third Time Out, especially during COVID, uh, we transitioned into being full-time teachers. We had taught about 10 years prior to that, and uh, it was already a huge part of our life. But he started a YouTube channel. We both amped up our teaching schedules. And, you know, so I find myself feeling more like a teacher these days than a touring musician. Mm -hmm. And um, so... This just rolls right off my tongue, but when I when I first start a student, and I, I have a qualifier for this that I'll say after, but we teach the alternating thumb roll would be mm. the first thing that you learn, right? So we do three, two, five, one, and we talk about pick direction, and we talk about the economy of motion, and keep staying tucked. And I equate it to like a typer. You have your home. I'm sorry, keys staying what? Tucked.
0: Tucked. Okay. Tucked. All right. So
1: if you think of typing and you're on your home keys. Your fingers reach for the key, they're gonna go and then they go back and they rest. And if you look at Earl's hand, he just stayed tucked Mm -hmm. above strings one, two, and three, basically. And they just sat there. And then there was the minimal movement necessary to get to whatever string he needed. And then he was back to his home keys. Ready position. Yeah. So we don't want flailing fingers that are just going crazy because the economy of motion is gone at that point it's hard to ever play fast yeah. we talk about pick direction you want to get as perfectly parallel to the string as possible but at the same time it, our hands are a little bit like a bridge if you get your thumb in your middle as good as you can your index just kind of has to sit there it, uh-huh. so it's not that you're going to have a perfect contact mark on your pick because you can see where the strings hit on every finger necessarily, but you want it as good as it can be because it's scratchy if it's on the side versus... right. Uh So we talk about that stuff, and then we just talk about trying to make sure there are no weak or strong fingers. Everybody tends to have one. So that's what we're aiming for, and we do a metronome per click, and uh, we don't want to lope, which is what I...
2: seasick kind of... Yeah,
1: and here's the the qualifier about that, though. We have players like Alan Mundy, who is a big loper, and it's magical, and it's great. And I've played with Alan Mundy recording slowed down, and it's even more pronounced than I thought it was when I'm playing with him. But my experience as a teacher is if someone can play even timing... They can lope if they want, but if they lope all the time, they can't play evenly. So you can bet whatever Alan Mundy does is a choice. And if he wanted to go the other direction, he could at any time. So I just try to teach evenness. And then, yes, we will lope later. We will accentuate things. But what we're ending up with is eventually this... just over and over, and banjo is an b- instrument of repetition, right? And then when you speed it up, it starts to sound musical. Right? And But the way to achieve that is doing it really, really slow and remembering that it's exponential growth. The guy who does it 100 times is more than 10 times better than the guy who did it 10.
0: Oh, wow. Just for how deeply it seats itself into your... Yeah,
1: you just get better. Your you, muscle
0: memory or whatever Yeah, it is.
1: And, and just uh, the execution just really improves.
0: Hey, folks, we'll get right back to the interview. But I wanted to express my gratitude for all of you for listening and my extra gratitude To a small subset of you listeners, that's the patrons of the show, and really this show would not be possible without my Patreon subscribers who went to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to help support the show. This episode's featured Patreon supporter is Kenneth Johnson. Kenneth always knew he wanted to play an instrument but was finally drawn to the banjo after seeing the Ken Burns country music documentary and now he's online watching Jim Pankey videos and learning how to play and apparently listening to the Picky Fingers podcast. So Kenneth, I think you have a great start. Keep with it. And thank you so much for being a Patreon supporter. Once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast to help keep these great interviews coming. The next thing you mentioned, and, it, and it's funny that, well, is, is backup. And what I was going to say is, is funny is that was something I really wanted to ask you about or, or like the specific situations for, say, the Graskills, because there is so much going on. And maybe having you just talk about what your general approach is with that. But since you mentioned that it might be different than some other projects, maybe also then contrast it to what you might do in other situations.
1: Yeah, backup is arranged in bands just like the order of the solos. Mm-hmm. So we assume that hopefully everybody knows where they're supposed to back up and they'll stick to it in that in that spot so that it stays nice and um, organized. It doesn't mean you can never fill at the same time, but hopefully it's a complimentary thing that's getting yeah. played if that happens. And uh, in in the Graskles, there's... Now, I mean, lead guitar as well, but that's not so much a, an issue with backup. But we have fiddle, mandolin, and uh, and banjo, and none of the three of us are singers. So there are three backing instruments on every song. You contrast that to where I started, which was with the Larry Stevens band. We were four-piece, and he played mandolin. So there was no other lead instrument uh, backing up, so I just had a free for all, which you. was so fun. I mean, I loved <laughs> loved that, and yeah. uh, it gave me a chance as a nineteen year old to play a lot because I had all the verses and all the courses. Right, I love a four piece bluegrass band song. I mean, uh, uh, sound that's what got me was Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, and that's what mm-hmm. they were. And then you you find the in-between, for instance, my husband and I are working on our first ever co-build album. We've never done a record. We've played on a lot of records together, but we've never had an album that we're both uh, named on. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And that's arranged to our preferences. So Uh there's a lot of banjo backup and a lot of mandolin backup because we can uh, envision the song and grab the pieces we want and there's a lot less control when it's a band situation because everybody has their own vision and uh, you have to be a team player and and just go with that. So there's every end of the spectrum and everything in between.
0: Can you drill down more specifically like how you might approach lead guitar backup or Mm -hmm. mandolin backup or vocal backup? Maybe take us through what what you think about when you're?
1: Yeah, this when you're is deciding what to do. this is part of a, a lot larger conversation I think, right. which is the role of the banjo, the R O L E job of yeah. the banjo, and how it's changed. And I think what really cemented this change—it was happening already—but when Ron uh, Block went with Alison Krauss, everybody got used to the sound of the banjo rolling all the time. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, it it wasn't like that. It was completely acceptable. Certainly J.D. Crowe's the master of this, where you would hear some vamps and all this great, juicy, Sonny Osborne is another example, up-the-neck backup, and vamping in addition to low rolling. And then the idea just sort of changed to create that momentum and drive that people expect now. The banjo more or less roles all the time in most bands. And it's not necessarily, uh, again, a good or a bad thing. It's just the norm these days. So anymore, I mean, I I make the joke that my I make a living doing this, but it, it's really the truth. I mean... <laughs> That is the truth. I mean, that's what I'm doing 90% of the time is that. So if it's guitar, I I do that, just way down. If the mandolin is taking a break, he likes me to roll. Adam Haynes, the fiddle player, will take over the mandolin chop. Uh, and then fiddle is probably a banjo player's biggest opportunity to still play aggressively yeah. as a backup player and then vocally you know you probably get maybe one verse where you're just doing what I just did with fills here and there maybe if you're lucky and your bandmates will tolerate it you can go up the neck like
0: he said, I'd never be traveling home. When i resisted he had to-
2: Say I'm traveling the highway
1: home. It's all about again being a team player and figuring out what they want and what they like and uh, rolling with it.
0: <laughs> That's a good way to good way to put it. Roll with
1: it. Yeah, rolling with it. That's right.
0: Uh do you ever give consideration to um registers? Like, so for example, if if a guitarist is maybe playing more out of open position, does that change where you might want to back things up or I guess vocally that would apply to, to try to stay out of whatever the range is of the thing that you're backing up?
1: Yeah, that, that's a a great consideration because it's all about context, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent, uh, I have a a young little brilliant student that you met, Nikolai, and he was going to Nashville and he was going to sit with all these amazing banjo players while I was there We spent about a month on backup for banjo-to-banjo because that is totally different than how you would play even in a small setting because the assumption there is you're never going to roll because whoever's playing the break is going to be rolling. So what Mm, are you going to do? Be
0: messy. So it's
1: all about context. And I can't say that I have any rules or or go-to preconceptions with that sort of thing except to say that you just listen. And if something's clashing you'll feel that, or it, maybe it's just a bit heavy. You'll feel that and and do something else to yeah. try to make it all semiotic.
0: Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you about the solo section of All I Want Is You. Oh, yeah. Which has that really great triplet pattern. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess my, my lead-in was like, usually that's the sort of thing that we might associate with like a really cool backup pattern, but you play a great melody with that. I was wondering if you could just Demonstrate some of the techniques that you used. It was just a sure. I don't know something if I, I noticed that I. Would, that it, I, yeah.
1: um, I did that in A without a capo or B flat. We'll go with A today. And uh, Chris saying that was on one of my that was on String Works again. Yeah, I should put it
0: in context. Yeah, yeah it, right,
1: right. Was Stringworks, so it was on String so it's a banjo album. So oh. I got a lot of backup. I got. I said the solo was like War and Peace. I mean, I, I got to play just the whole song as a solo because mm. it's a banjo record. Yeah. That's not something that would happen in a band. <laughs> so if I can remember it, uh, and this all stems from the chord scale. If there was one technique that I could say is liquid gold or banjo gold. <laughs> uh,
0: wooden metal. Oh, like wooden yes. Wooden and metal gold.
1: It, it's a special alloy Right. Uh, it would be the G major chord scale. You have to get great at that because mm-hmm. it will transform your playing. It can be used 4-4, four, 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 fast, slow, lead, or backup. Uh-huh. And that's what all of this is. Um, my teacher never presented the G major chord scale to me, but I knew it and used it all the time because that's how he played And then as a teacher, I I thought, oh, my goodness, all this stuff is that. So it comes to people way faster if you just teach them the chord scale. And then they already know the raw material. Then they just stick it into songs. It goes a lot better. And that's what this stuff comes from. Okay. So, um, like, if I'm in A, if I played just an A chord scale, the bar shape inversion, well, that's... Kind of the song right there. So I'm I'm gonna stumble because I haven't played this since we recorded it, probably. Reason I played that, uh, I wanted this phrase. It's flat and scruggs too. But uh, let's see. Was this? You see how little movement is in that? Wait. There we go. we go Uh, and so anyway i I just thought was a great melodic not melodic style just a great melody yeah super low singer i had chris jones sing that Mm -hmm. and then you get all kinds of backup that is the same thing now i did do this that chord's not in the chord scale that's a nine uh but in sunny osborne i learned that from him right it's a very
0: sunny thing
1: yeah so but everything else basically is so for backup That was straight chord scale. You can do it again.
0: good uh i i also my ear gravitated toward uh eagle eye annie on Mm. that record and i think the reason my i mean all of your playing is great but that one stuck out as being maybe not necessarily it presents like a slightly different side of your playing i thought Mm -hmm. than maybe a lot of school stuff, or even a lot of other uh, yeah. material on that record.
1: And, th- and that's the idea of a solo um, album. If it just sounds like the band that you're in, in a way, it's like, well, why do What's one? It, you right. kind of want to use those as opportunities to say, because I do have vocal songs on that album. It's half and half, I think. And uh, right. it's like, these are the types of songs I love. Like I had Claire Lynch sing When Fall Comes to New England. That's not ever going to be a Grascals song. I just wouldn't fit the band. But I love that song. I love playing banjo on that type of song. So it's an opportunity even vocally to choose material that you love that uh, would be a little different. And then Eagle Eye Annie, uh, that one will be even worse. Uh, but uh, you know, the tunes that I write tend to be a lot like that. So if I write a tune... Uh, there's a good possibility it's something like this. Right? I didn't spot So I, I didn't spike on that because I needed the G note when I got there.
0: Ah, okay. Yeah. And I'm sorry for not knowing, but is that an original composition yeah. of yours? Yeah. Oh, talk about that. How how do you... I mean, do you have a any specific process for writing tunes? Or? No,
1: I, I think uh, I loved the idea of lots of slides and pull-offs in D. Uh It's just great to... It's just really good in that D shape to play those kinds of things. And then if you're in D, you get the low string, which is easy and nice. So I think I was just doing that and and came up with a, a tune that would work incorporating some of that but uh, I don't write near enough but it's different every time sometimes it helps me if I narrow it down like uh, one of the songs on the Stringworks record that we're talking about is called Great Waterton and it's oh. the Barn Burner. and I wrote it because I needed one yeah. uh, you know I, I knew that I needed a really fast instrumental uh, preferably original so I just sat down and thought, okay, I need to write something like that. And um, that one is super fast, and it's way too early for... Let's see... super fast. Uh It was faster than that. Yeah. (laughs) But anyway, so there, there's an example of like, I need this kind of song. So I did it.
0: You mentioned really enjoying, uh, being like a a Trishka diehard fan. And I read about his, his album, album called, uh, Hill Country. And I think the way he approached that was like, he's going to make a banjo album. What are categories. all the categories of banjo tunes? And that it strikes me that that's like a similar thing to what you just said. So is that is that a common thing that you do where you want you to... Wanna...
1: Only when it's time for a record. Hopefully yeah. you have... My husband, on the other hand, uh, Wayne, he writes so many tunes. I mean, he's mm. got albums worth of tunes that he could pull at any time. And I don't do that. So I'll usually have written a few tunes and of course you don't always want to do anything with a lot of them or most of them even but you ideally would have a lot to choose from and i just have to be real i tend to write medium and slower pretty sounding things so the what i'm gonna lack is a hard driving uh fast bluegrass song so that's the reason the album before that uh I was in the same boat. I wrote a tune called Don't Tread on Me because I needed that again. But I usually have a lot of the, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot, but I have several of the pretty things like... Or, or like a.
0: That's great, and and is that that's not something that you have not recorded yet? That's no, that
1: just... one's on uh, the record before String Works.
0: Well, before we run out of out of time, are are there any other general techniques that you view as something that you re- rely a lot upon in your style, or maybe even something that you worked on during your learning process that really helped you advance?
1: Yeah, I think learning all the Scruggs tunes is really essential. And, uh, and it's a lifelong process, but really trying to know them. You know, I'm still to this day,
2: <laughs>
1: you know, I'm still to this day trying to, to get some of those tunes. Joe Mullins, on the other hand, never learned a Scruggs tune in his oh. life.
0: <laughs>
1: He's, he doesn't know any of them.
0: Who? Who? <laughs> right.
1: Um, but I think that's an essential foundation. And then find some music that you're really inspired by. But try to always check yourself that it's a great banjo player because we are products of what we listen to, and osmosis does matter and happen musically. And yeah. uh, so, even if you're you're like I, you know I love to hear old Scruggs play the banjo, I just can't listen to Flattened Scruggs that long. Well, so find a presentation that suits you better overall that you know is a trusted Scruggs player. So maybe the Bluegrass Album Man is the, the answer for you or uh, Ron Stewart is a phenomenal. Uh-huh. Straight ahead, Jim Mills. You know, you can yeah. find these. Uh, Jim Mills, gosh, what a great Scrux player. Oh, he's player. one of my top. And yeah. and he's completely polished in the presentation he he uh, gives on his record. So that's a, a wonderful in to, to get at the real stuff. Uh, and then... Try to, if you can find a teacher, especially these days with online learning, it, it's so easy. I equate it to like bad doctrine. You don't want a teacher who's going to teach you wrong roles or sure. anything like that because relearning is so much harder. So I would just encourage people to listen to great banjo players and try to be sure as much as you can that you're learning good, good vocabulary because it saves you so much time uh, in the end. And then I played endlessly with albums you know i spent so much time playing out and it was just like you get to be a member of that band give us for a like while.
0: a give us like a top three or or okay. five what what yeah. are like what are the ones that
1: oh there's so many are your
0: go tos? yeah
1: there, there's so many i'm trying to think back to my childhood bedroom and that radio the cd player that i had Live in Japan by The Country Gentleman was a big one. That's Bill Emerson on banjo. The Live Wire record, uh, which ironically my husband was on, uh, Scott Vestal was playing banjo on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember pretty much trying to learn everything of that. Uh, I remember playing a whole lot with the Osborne brothers. And one reason why is uh, because Sonny is amazing. And uh, vocally, I could sing with Bobby. So as oh. I was playing, you know, I could sing with right. the the lead singer, and it was in a range that I could do and stuff. Uh, so the Once More albums were uh, there's Volume One and Volume Two. Once mm-hmm. More, uh, the Osborne Brothers. Though if I could only name three, those are the three that came to my mind right now.
0: Okay, cool. I know my question made it seem like I was gonna start wrapping up, but you just keep jogging my my memory for other things to ask you. You, t- I've, I've heard you talk about, I think probably at, at Banjo Summit, about being able to hear people who have studied Earl, let's say, uh, and a lot of those like little differences. And you already pointed one out with what was the song that you demonstrated Blue Ridge, Cabin Blue Cabin Home Ridge at the end, Cabin Home. Uh, are there any other examples of that? Of like, I guess when I hear someone like you say that, I worry that like I'm sure that you hearing me play would be like, oh, he hasn't done all those micro focused concentrated type of learning that that you have what are what are some other things that that maybe you listen for or that tip you off
1: yeah that that's a great question and here's the beauty of it no matter where we are we're all still on that same journey someone asked Alan Mundy what he was doing during covid and he said he had revisited the scrugs book because every time he goes back there's more there, and it never stops. And that that's one of the beauties of uh, playing an instrument, playing bluegrass and playing the banjo, is you never stop refining. I mean, I just heard something in ground speed that I, I kind of missed. Um, what was it? Uh, when he goes to the fourth string, and, and we have so many live recordings now that we can hear, but they, there's actually a slide. It's not uh, when he goes to the second part of mean he
2: goes
1: that's there if if you you can hear that and where i had just always gone versus i mean that's a minute thing but that's the beauty of it is that you at first if you get 70 percent, that is great Uh but every time you get back you get just a little bit more Uh, but we're all on that journey so there's no one who could ever say well you haven't Microanalyzed Enough (laughs) And I have Because it's never enough It's always going to be there So So That's um, Never anything to feel bad about But like this phrase And this may have been Something I was thinking of Earlier on But this That Fifth string Versus It's head over heels Head over heels Head over heels Yeah my new difference, but it's there. And once you
0: leaving out that one little note or shifting it, shifting to the, it, it's yeah. still a G
1: note, right? Um, but yeah. uh, once you become aware of those things, it'll drive you crazy because you want them all. Uh-huh. So you start thinking, "Oh, now I sound better on that because of this one thing." So then it makes you want more of those one things.
0: Ah, cool. We haven't. Al- we also have not talked about your instrument. This is a fantastic sounding banjo, which is. Mostly because of the player, of course, but tell yep. us what you're playing.
1: This is a, a 33. Everyone that yeah, I tell that to thinks it's a, a 33. It's a 1930 thirty T 3 uh 59 oh, okay. and... Uh If, an, if its owner could only tune, it, it really is a great banjo, but I'm lucky to have it. It's got a pre-war ring in it, and um, and it's got a Robin Smith neck. It was a tenor, yeah, uh, of course, and I bought it in 2000 from Frank Neat. Uh Sonny Osborne uh, helped with that facilitated that, and I've uh, just been in love with it ever since, although... I'm about to get a new Deering banjo. Oh. I'm I'm pretty pumped about it. I don't have it yet, but we're working on that. So that'll be my first endorsement in uh, many, many years. I played uh, one of Sonny's Chiefs, mm-hmm. and it, it's really hard to do endorsements because I love this banjo so much. Yeah. It's like my mate. Uh, but I uh, played some, some Deerings that I really liked, and there was one pot in particular that uh, I really thought was a really functional banjo, you know, it, Mm. it had, it did everything I needed it to do. So we're going to make some alterations, but keep that pod and, um, they're building the neck and stuff. So So I'm excited about that.
0: Yeah, it'll be,
1: it'll be, uh, one of their stock models, but just slightly altered. Uh, so it's not like a, like Tony's banjo is, is a signature. It's not like a signature model. It's not like that, but it will be a slightly customized stock model.
0: Regarding the customizations, what sort of things are you looking for from that? That maybe is filling a gap that this doesn't serve, yeah. or is it more like you don't want to travel with this? Or, or well, uh, it's
1: just I—I'm just so attached to this that I don't often run across uh, new banjos that I think I could bear to play. Yeah, honestly, I, and I uh, understand that. And yeah. then I found uh, this particular banjo. Uh, they sent about five to Yen's Kruger's house. So that was a neat day huh. for me. I got to go up because oh, cool. he, he doesn't live that far from us. So I was able to go to his house and and uh, play a bunch of different banjos. And this particular pot, I felt like had, again, going back to context, I love the, the F-sharp tuned heads and, and the mellowness and filling mm-hmm. up a room that, that a lot of people do. It's not what works for me because yeah. of what I do uh, with the band. And and otherwise, I'm just a bluegrass player. I I dabble in other things like the solo banjo projects and that kind of thing get get a little different. But basically, I'm I'm just a tried and true bluegrasser. Mm -hmm. So what I need is punctuation and clarity and separation. And uh, I cannot afford to have a mellow sound because I'll just get absorbed and eaten alive. So This banjo had the punctuation that I felt like uh, would serve me well, so I thought, well, gosh, I think think this banjo might be a winner.
0: Very good. What else on your banjo? Obviously, we have banjo nerds listening, and there are a lot of parts that go into it, so let us know about anything else that you're partial to in terms of... Yep. Bridges or picks or, or anything yeah, else like that?
1: So the best picks, I think, uh, I've got a lifetime supply of the old nationals. I made sure I've, I've like allotted eight years per set to make sure that I can like get to 90 with picks. So like I have my <laughs> old nationals, but uh, that used to be really important. Now we have great finger pick makers. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I use Yates uh, finger picks. I also uh, use and love the Hoffmeyer. Uh, finger picks. I think both those guys are fantastic. And it's eliminated my, you know, panic There's about having anxiety, enough old right, nationals, yeah. <laughs> right? And then this is just a Dunlop medium, but I also have a blue chip uh, thumb pick that I play with a lot of the time. Uh, I use GHS strings, which are a custom set. It's 10, 11 and a half, 13, the JD 20 and a 10. So, like a, a medium light yeah. uh, gauge. Uh, this is like the only banjo in the world, this old one, where the tailpiece—I I don't know what it is. I've—I've I've never had a tailpiece that needed to be this way, but the tailpiece sits high uh-huh. and then actually angles down a little bit, which is the total opposite of what it should do to make it sound good. But I've—I don't really mess with any of this stuff, but I've had it pulled down and and angled more, you know, conventionally. And uh, the banjo doesn't sound as good. So I have this odd angle on this tailpiece, but it's an old Presto tailpiece. And then one of the customizations that Daring is making is I just cannot tolerate finish on a neck anymore. Oh. Uh, this had finish on it when I got it, this neck, but it's 20 years old and I've just worn the finish worn it off. off. Okay. So I've gotten so used in that my chief banjo has uh, no finish on the back. Right. So that's a, that's a big deal breaker for me. I just can't do finished necks anymore. <laughs> and then I, I am not a radius uh, fingerboard player. I think it works great for single string. And when I do that, I think it's cool. But I think pull-offs are harder on radius boards. And again, going back to context, I know so many guys who can't live without that. And I've just never had it or felt a need for it. I just do the standard 5-8s bridge and mm-hmm. very traditional setup. Uh, you run the head around G sharp.
0: I was just going to ask. Yeah, you mentioned having like the the F sharp for the the prettier sounding yeah, stuff. Yeah. but, but G sharp is what you need for most of the.
1: Yeah, I think so. On the drum you dial, you know, eighty nine ninety right in there okay. uh, is where it tends to stay.
0: Right on. What about? performing preferences in terms of like microphones, or I guess for recording either, do you, do you find yourself having a, a preference for microphones or other gear that you might plug into?
1: Yeah, um, you know, if as long as it's compatible with everything else that's on stage, a Shure 57 uh-huh. is a great banjo mic yeah. for live. It sounds exactly like your banjo sounds. You're not going to get feedback or it, you wouldn't think you would because you can just crank the gain mm-hmm. on them. Uh, The only issue I have with 57s, tonally, I love just a straight 57, but if the other guys are on condensers, it's hard to compete sometimes. So I think you kind of all need to be on the dynamic 57s and 8s, or everybody needs to be on a condenser. And there are definitely some mics that I like better than others, but it's whatever's there that day because I don't carry, we don't carry sound equipment. And uh, as far as recording Uh, Again, it goes back to whatever they have, but um, there are, you know, some great Neumann mics that Hmm. are old, like uh, U87s and uh, vintage type mics that I have been put in front of that just slay me where I just want to stay there all day. Uh, They're super expensive, so you just make the best with what's there when you get there. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I I think that's all the questions I have. If there's not any other words of parting advice. You, you can offer that, but um, obviously I want people to know where to find you and your tour dates and your teaching availability, all that stuff. So, yeah. so fill us in.
1: Uh, thank you for that. Uh, I do want to mention one project yeah, um, yeah. that is coming up. Well, a couple. The album I mentioned that will be uh, my first ever album, Co-Build with My Husband. Mm. Uh, I don't know why we finally thought that was okay, but uh, we've avoided that for 20-plus years of marriage, but we are going to do a record co-build this time.
0: I think the better question is, why didn't you think it was okay Before, earlier? We're right? not
1: sure. I, I think both of us just thought, well, as, as great as our marriage is, there's always musically this idea of, you be you and I'll be me, uh-huh. right? You know, uh-huh. And uh, and we've never been in the same band, which I think uh, there are reasons for that, uh, logistics and family and raising our son and all that. But... yeah. We have a great marriage, and you're tampering with it in a major way if suddenly you're in the same band together. So we've just not really ever—we're we we're not against it, but we've never had a desire to do that. So the album's going to be called Benson, and uh, it, it will come out. Uh, music will start coming out this year with that. But the thing your listeners may be especially interested in— is a book I'm writing for Hal Leonard, co-writing with Bill Evans. With Bill and Evans,
0: yeah, I've been hearing about this. 25, it sounds
1: awesome. Yeah, 25 great bluegrass banjo solos. And it's an opportunity to evaluate a solo, but also 25 banjo players. And it's a massive project. It's one that, uh, it's one that we've been working on a long time. And uh, I'm really excited for people to have access to some interviews with guys like Bill Emerson, Alan Mundy, who who may, maybe haven't been interviewed a lot in the last fif- 15 years, say, mm. or 10 years, and get a perspective fresh from them right now.
0: That must be quite a a daunting task to come up with the the 25. What was the process? Yeah. Did you like a, a Final Four-style tournament yeah. where you pitted the solos against each that, other? That um,
1: was really tough, and Hal Leonard certainly had some input. Hal Leonard, being the publishing company, yeah. certainly had some input into that. And uh, uh, just as a side note, uh, because Bill Evans would want me to say this, I originally was writing the whole book, included Bill as one of the artists, and then realized I wasn't going to get it done. So I pulled him in as a co-author. So then he was all weirded out because he was in the book and he was an author, but I was an author, not in the book. And right. he said, it just makes me look weird. And I'm like, well, we're stuck with it because I'm not redoing <laughs> the chapter. I've got yours done. Like we're not doing another one. Yeah. And uh, then at the 11th hour, uh, an artist pulled out on us and he said, and and I agreed. It was like, because I knew that I would do the interview for him and he could write it. So we ended up in the book. He did by his own right. And then I did kind of out of necessity so that was a little weird uh, that we're in it. It feels weird that he and I are in it now. But um, but anyway, it was really tough. Not so much the solos. I mainly let the artists choose the solos. I didn't do much of that. But okay. uh, the artist, it was hard. So I definitely leaned toward the more um, legendary players. Yeah. I could have done it with a, a totally new crop of players, but it's... Greatest banjo solo. So the assumption is it's been around long enough to be be noted as great. So noam is the youngest guy in the mm-hmm. book, and uh, and then and even can, he
0: at this point is actually has quite a yeah prolific. And he's um, in his forties,
1: I think, right at this point. He's, yeah, he's got to be pretty he's darn close. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. So uh, it's not like he's a spring chicken exactly anymore, right? right? But he's the youngest guy. So so Norm back is who is represented yeah. in the book
0: oh how wonderful yeah i'm excited already so what is it it is a transcription of the solo itself and then also what yeah. a discussion and di- it's about dissection. Two,
1: yeah it's about two thousand words total a uh, lot of we interviewed each of the guys so it, mm. it's uh, just imagine like a a mid-sized banjo newsletter interview mm. uh and then a, a dissection of the solo with the tab oh. and a recording we also recorded each of the solos
0: Oh, wonderful.
1: It's at 60 beats a minute. So. That's
0: exciting. When can we expect that?
1: Ask Bill Evans. When it, when it comes yeah, out? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> ask Bill. And, uh, and then once it's in the Hal Leonard hopper, I don't know.
0: Yeah, right, right. Uh, did you already give us websites and, oh, and things like that?
1: KSBBanjo.com. Uh, certainly you can find The Grascals on Facebook and online. And uh, also my husband's YouTube channel, Wayne's World of Mandolin i see daniel over (laughs) here mandolins and beer uh, is another great yeah Yeah. mandolins and beer great podcast as well but um yeah that's the way to catch us
0: wonderful well thank you again Kristen. congrats on the award last night another award for you which is all much deserved so uh it was great speaking with you thank you keith that's gonna wrap up this episode of the picky fingers podcast thank you so much for listening the song clips you heard in this episode were don't tread on me by Kristen scott benson jesse james by whitey and hogan that's how i can count on you by doyle lawson and quicksilver and then traveling the highway home by the graskles extra special thanks to this episode's patreon supporter of the show that's kenneth johnson head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter yourself. Email the show at Podcast at gmail.com. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can join me next time for the next great interview. I'll see you then.